Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB TV's Lawmakers in the new show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, and I'm filling in for Bill Nygut today. There's lots of legal news to talk about today, from the FBI search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home last night to his former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani's slated appearance before a Fulton County grand jury today. There were arguments over Georgia's abortion law, also in court, the men who murdered Ahmad Arbery. And so we'll talk about all of that and the latest on monkeypox in Georgia. And we have a great panel of journalists to talk about this today. And first, the AJC senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman. Hi, Tamar. I'm glad you're here. And you won't be able to stay long, but we're glad you're here for just a short period of time. Thanks for having me, Donna. It's great to see you in the host chair. Yeah, you're it's, uh, changing changing places with you for a change. Next, the AJC's managing editor, Leroy Chapman, is with us. Glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Also joining us from GPB's Savannah, and he's our Savannah-based reporter, Benjamin Payne. Hi, Ben. Hi, glad to be here, Donna. And GPB's senior reporter, she's our senior health reporter, Ellen Eldridge. She will join us later. And from Axios Atlanta, Emma Hurt, welcome. Hey, everyone. And Axios was in the news yesterday with the big news of some changes going on. So um, we won't get into that today with you, though. Okay. But it was, yeah, it's just, good, it was good a big, news. Just a minor Atlanta angle on that story. <laughs> <laughs> a big Atlanta angle. Well, I want to get to you tomorrow because I know you're going to be busy in court today. So let's start off with your uh, coverage of the grand jury probe into Georgia's 2020 election. So let's let's talk about what's happening, what 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 was expected, and what we're getting. Sure. Well, I was expecting to spend this morning bright and early outside of the Fulton County Courthouse. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's personal attorney, was scheduled to speak with the grand jury at 9 a.m. this morning. But then yesterday morning, I got a uh, I got a tip saying, "Hey, keep an eye on the docket." And lo and behold. Something pops up, an emergency hearing with Giuliani's attorneys at 12.30 today with the Fulton County judge who's overseeing the inquiry. And they are arguing that Giuliani uh, cannot fly due to a recent uh, procedure he had on his heart. It's kind of unclear exactly what happened. They are asking basically for an indefinite delay until he's able to hop on a plane again. They mentioned that they had you know, suggested doing a Zoom um, kind of call with the grand jury, the grand jury, or sorry, the, the Fulton DA's office turned them down. The Fulton DA's office said, hey, Rudy Giuliani was traveling after his heart procedure. They showed photos that he posted in New Hampshire. They said they had offered to, you know, if Giuliani couldn't fly, they'd offered to fly him, or sorry, to take the train or the bus to come down to Georgia, and he disagreed. So Judge McBurney, who's overseeing all of that, will take all of those arguments into account, and I will be curious where he lands about where, when and where Giuliani will be testifying. Yeah, it sounds like the DA's office is really trying to keep up on this and saying, hey, listen, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to get you here. We're, you're, we're not accepting any excuses. Exactly. I mean, and not only that, but the fact that they're kind of picking through social media posts, sharing pictures of Giuliani and a woman in New Hampshire. They mentioned getting a tip about airline tickets that he purchased to go to Italy and Switzerland in July after his procedure. It's unclear if he actually went on that trip, um, but still it kind of goes to show how contentious this has gotten and how the Fulton DA's office is taking a very firm line on all of this. Yeah, their, their team on all of this is quite large, isn't it? 
Yeah, as far as I know, they have about 10 folks in their uh, department working on this, which is pretty large for a case in the Fulton DA's office. Your average murder might have one or two prosecutors on this, so 10 is not a small number. Um, she has a staff of about 360. To put that into perspective, it's the largest DA's office in the state or, or one of the largest, but for sure, her critics are saying, how are you putting that much manpower into going after the former president and what they see as a political witch hunt? Yeah. And, and I know you covered this a bit, too. Tell us what your perspective is on what's happening. Well, I mean, I think it's just interesting if we look, take a step back and look at where we are in this investigation. It's like we're really in the thick of all the people who don't want to talk. <laughs> Everyone is fighting. Um, and that's why we're seeing this constant stream of filings in different courts, as Tamar knows very well. Um, Lindsey Graham lawyers will appear in federal court tomorrow to try to fight his subpoena in a similar way that Jody Heist did. And so it's just, that's why we're seeing this like churn of news, because these are the people who didn't willingly testify as so many already have before the, the Fulton um, DA's investigation before the special grand jury. So Tamar, will this drag things on the, the you know, I know there was a, the expectation that we might see all of this wrap up, maybe the first of the year, maybe the end of the year, first of the year. Uh, will all of these delays probably keep this dragging on quite a bit, certainly past the uh, November election? Yeah, the Fulton VA has mentioned to me that she's kind of factored in all of this into her timeline, but certainly this is not something that I think will resolve itself easy. And remember that there's so many witnesses that are challenging their subpoenas. And so this is going to kind of play out over and over again, especially the closer, the closer that she gets to the former president, potentially kind of the more fighting, the more claims of executive privilege, attorney-client privilege we might see, um, especially if she goes for folks who worked with him in the White House. Um, you know, she's still telling me that she's hoping to have a decision on whether to bring charges to anyone by the end of the calendar year. Um, the special grand jury is authorized to meet through May. It does not seem like they are close to being done based on some recent comments from Judge McBurney, who's overseeing the case. They've mentioned kind of taking a pause around October when early voting begins in order to avoid the appearance of politics. But I think, unfortunately, no matter what they do, they're going to be accused of, of politics. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, what happened in Amar-a-Lago last night uh, where the FBI agents raided the um, the former president's home is uh, not related to what's going on with the grand jury, but it certainly is interesting that we're seeing so much going on when it comes to Donald Trump right now and leading as we approach the election. Yeah, uh, Emma, and yeah, and I mean, I think what it does it gives fuel to the fire that's already been burning on the Republican side that the left quote, the mainstream media, quote unquote, is still out to get Trump, whether that is represented by Fonnie Willis or, you know, the DOJ and the FBI, even though ironically, as we know, the FBI is led by a Trump appointee, Christopher Wray. But I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, I think, last night or this morning that this raid is unifying us in ways that I haven't seen and so both of these things, while they, you know, could lead to real consequences for real people, um, criminal criminal charges, even they are having this massive political um, effect on the Republicans, and it's a galvanizing one for many at this point. Tomorrow, absolutely. Absolutely. It plays right into the narrative that Trump has used for many years, that the powers that be, the political establishment, they're out to get me. I'm standing up for you. They're out to get people like us. And I am going to stand up and fight for you. And so this, this really is, I totally agree with Emma, it could be a very galvanizing moment for Republicans. Um, you could already see them start to attack this Fulton County inquiry more, especially once they started, once it became apparent that the 16 Trump electors in Georgia were targets of the investigation. And I think it could provide even more incentive for Donald Trump to perhaps launch this, launch this long-rumored third presidential bid sooner rather than later, which will, of course, very much complicate um, these probes going on in Fulton County and with the Justice Department and the FBI. Yeah, Leroy, the, the, the feeling that this will add fuel to, um, this will just 
help the those who want Donald Trump to run for president in 2024. This uh, the fact that he's in the news a lot and they're they're feeling like he's being, um, you know, treated badly. That that this may this may get people just kind of fired up. His base even more fired up. Yeah, it will. Not only will it do that, but there's the other part of this too, which is if the narrative is that this is politics, it's nasty and it's messy. Uh, people then don't pay attention to the facts. So if you've got uh, things that are as methodical as the January 6th uh, hearings, which have unfolded uh, in real time where we uh, looked at a bunch of evidence that we didn't know, um, you know, the public uh, now has a deeper understanding. But if you're able to just lump this into nasty politics, uh, people are, are less inclined to, to really understand the fact, and they're more inclined to be entrenched with whatever side of the, the political divide they're on. And that, and that helps Donald Trump, because we know that a lot of the evidence uh, in the January 6th is pretty damning, and potentially there could be damning evidence here. So, uh, so again, it, it really is about, uh, you know, the, the, the perception, and I'd be interested in, in looking at polling uh, we've had some polling here in Georgia about uh, about Trump and about some of his claims with the election. But again, um, if this moves the needle, as Marjorie Taylor Greene may, may, is, is suggesting, uh, it could be that uh, people become kind of dismissive of, what's, of all of these uh, legal actions. Yeah. Ben, I was curious as to, you know, any thoughts about how this is playing out in, in your part of the state? Sure. Um, yeah, coastal Georgia is kind of a mixed bag politically. Uh, Savannah is seen as sort of more liberal than the more outlying areas, rural or conservative. Um, this isn't really, I think, top of mind for the congressional race for uh, coastal Georgia's uh, District 1. I think the, the main issues there have been so far, um, you know, kind of what we're seeing across the country with abortion and gun rights. Um, but certainly it's um, it's it's going to uh, be felt in November somehow. Yeah, I think that uh, I, it seems like every day there's something new that we're hearing. And I think a lot of us were really surprised yesterday by this um, FBI, uh, this FBI raid in Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, we're yet to hear exactly what what comes out of all of that and where it's going. Although it does deal with um, sensitive documents that come out of the White House. And this, uh, Emma, this is an unusual part of the, the, all of this. Like, it, the, you know, what we're hearing is, and certainly in my lifetime, I've never heard of a president resident being raided because of something like this. Right. And I mean, my understanding is that what could be at issue here is, um, you know, the law that protects presidential records as, you know, owned by the people as immediately should go into National Archive hands and be preserved for historical precedent. And then that was passed after Watergate um, in the wake of that scandal. So this does seem unprecedented in terms of a use of that um, that law. And the other thing that was that's just striking to me is yesterday morning in Axios, we had a story that Maggie Haberman has put in her book, the New York Times journalist, about Trump um, photos of documents that had been apparently shredded and tried to be flushed down the toilet in the White House and on a trip. So this is a thread that we're seeing come to light more and more. And if, you know, the suppositions about what the FBI rate is about, name with the caveat that we really don't know much of anything for sure, um, that that thread is building towards that law in particular, at least it could be. It certainly falls under the every time you think you've heard it all, uh, <laughs> you, there's something else. The um, the Maggie Hagerman book that you referred to, the, her her reference to things being that the former president, she's saying, tore up some legal documents, uh, some uh, some presidential documents, uh, some classified documents, and put them in the toilet. And that I guess the people who were having to clean that up or fix them took pictures that there were actually pictures of the presidential toilet. I mean, Tamara, I, I just don't, I just, I just don't know what to expect next. I know, especially after four years of, of covering Trump in Washington, I've learned to, to not be surprised anymore. And yet I find myself week after week uh, in that position. And what I'm curious about as more and more facts come out about this is we've kind of known for a couple months now about 
Trump's proclivity to, to destroy records and uh, that there were boxes of classified materials in Mar-a-Lago that had been reported by the national press. I wonder what caused the FBI to want to raid Mar-a-Lago now. Is there some new information? Is there some sort of imminent threat that they saw? Or maybe was it only now that they got enough evidence to be able to convince a federal judge to, to give them a warrant? I don't know. Yeah. And then we're hearing the federal judge may have been in Florida, possibly. So there's still a lot that we don't know about this that we're going to find out, I'm sure, in the days and the weeks to come. Tomorrow, uh, I know we got to let you go. Uh, we are so excited that you were able to be on this show. Thank you so much for joining us. And so we're going to hear more from you, of course, about what's going on in the courthouse. We're going to tune in and read the AJC to find out about your report. So thanks again. And so we're going to take our first break. When we come back, we'll talk about the federal sentencing for the three men who murdered Ahmad Aubrey. This is Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donald Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut with GCB's Benjamin Payne, the AJC's Leroy Chapman, and Emma Hurt with Axios Atlanta. And so, Benjamin, I want to start with you because you were down at the courthouse in, um, in, in Georgia, South Georgia, like yesterday, and tell us about the mood when it came to the Ahmaud Arbery um, murderers who were um, facing these federal hate crime sentencing um, the, the federal hate crime sentencing that we had been expecting, that we'd heard so much about because of, um, well, the fact that uh, this hate, we'd had the state hate crimes take place, um, and they'd been already sentenced to that, but there, we'd heard so much about these two of the defendants at least, or, or maybe you can help me with this, all three of them actually didn't want to uh, go to, to be in the state prison. They wanted to be in federal prison. That's right. Um, and ultimately, those requests by all three defendants, they were denied by the federal judge, Lisa Godbey Wood. And what really stood out to me most from yesterday's sentencing hearings was that this was the first time the judge in this case, Lisa Godbey Wood, really took center stage. And I don't mean that in like an egotistical sense on the judge's part. She's not at all about making things about herself. She's soft-spoken, has a calm demeanor. I just mean that for the first time in this hate crimes case, we had an objective voice, you know, a sort of third party, neither the prosecution nor the defense, an objective voice weigh in on this, you know, historic tragedy. And what she said was that the grisly images of the killing from that viral cell phone video taken by William Roddy Bryan, those images have been seared into the court's mind. And uh, she also said that the three men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery all received fair trials in this case. A fairness that a fairness that Ahmad Arbery did not receive when when he was chased down and killed. Yeah, it, it gave us a different perspective from from her, and it I felt like from what I read of your reporting that it, this was something she felt like she wanted to, to to say also. That's that's correct, and you kind of had to read in between the lines because most of the time it was just sort of a matter of um, legal housekeeping, just. She used the jargon, jargony term primary custodial jurisdiction. So it's this longstanding precedent uh, within the federal judicial, the federal um, justice system that if you have a prior conviction in a state court, then that jurisdiction should get uh, sort of dibs when it comes to imprisonment and custody. Um, so she really wasn't, you know, grandstanding at all, but she she had these moments in between where she was. Uh, you know, sort of speaking out, and she takes sentencing very seriously because uh, a few years ago in 2016, uh, this was well before the killing, um, she gave a speech at the University of Georgia School of Law, which is their alma mater, and she said that sentencing um, is, uh, is, is crucial because it really holds up a mirror to society and tells us, it tells us who we are. Yeah, that's interesting that she was talking about that. Emma, I know you've covered this too. Yeah, and I've really appreciated Benjamin's close coverage of this moment, too, because it is so striking to me that while, you know, the defendants can definitely appeal and this could go on, um, this is kind of the last step of what has been two and a half years since Ahmad Arbery's murder. 
and a state murder prosecution, and now the federal hate crimes prosecution as well. And so, you know, listening to some of the hearings yesterday and listening to members of Arbery's family speak again and again, as I've heard them speak, we've all heard them speak um, since the murder about the toll this has taken. I mean, it's just been two and a half years and it's been a really long road for, for people in Brunswick, for Arbery's family the most. And um, this is this was a big moment. Yeah, Benjamin, I want to talk about something else that we, we learned, and that is that Greg McMichael actually spoke yesterday. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, not just Greg McMichael, but also William Roddy Bryan. Um, they decided to address the court uh, right before their sentences were handed down. And this was the first time we had heard from uh, either of them uh, in either this federal hate crimes case or in the state murder case. Travis McMichael, uh, the one who fatally shot Arbery, he did not speak, but we had heard from him in the state murder trial. But uh, yesterday, Greg McMichael, the father, he's the one who initiated the whole chase. He said, quote, uh, I want to assure that I never wanted any of this to happen. There was no malice in my heart or my son's heart that day, unquote. Uh, he also apologized to his son, Travis, for, in his words, putting him in that situation. He also apologized to his wife. Uh, he did not explicitly apologize to the Arbery family, um, which I found uh, notable, only saying that he wished for God's peace for them and the community. And uh, William Roddy Bryan, he did apologize to Maude Arbery's family, uh, he said, quote, I never intended any harm to him, and I never would have played any role in what happened if I knew then what I know now, unquote. Uh, of course, one could argue that, that William Roddy Bryan had an ulterior motive in making that apology, perhaps trying to appeal to the judge for her mercy. Yeah, I, I wonder, Leroy, um, how, people, how people respond to that. We heard a little bit from the family uh, about what they, how they felt about how things went yesterday. But this has been a long road since February of 2020 to get us to, as Emma mentioned, to where we are now. That finally, uh, do you think that there is the feeling that we can maybe put some of this behind us? Well, um, the impact of this uh, beyond just the, the loss of, uh, of the family uh, is that uh, we've had some change where many people thought we, we, we may not get it. Um, and that's Georgia getting a hate crimes law. Um, and let's say really the impact of that video and that video, of course, changed everything. And it, it just shows you how justice uh, can turn on things that uh, at this point, had, had we not had the video, maybe we don't have any of those. So, uh, you know, it is long time coming. Uh, it, it has uh, created some change that we uh, that, that sped some change up in Georgia and accelerate the argument to get some of our laws changed. So the impact, uh, I think, uh, at the end of this. Uh, for for the family, uh, you know, despite their loss, I think at a certain point uh, they'll be able to look at uh, how uh, this case did change Georgia's laws and change some of our history and certainly uh, some of the attitudes I think that we've seen. Uh, not too long ago, there are many folks who thought that uh, this case probably would have been settled down in South Georgia where there's not a lot of media and attention and we may not have gotten any of this aired. So it says a lot about uh, what it means uh, with the one, the technology, two, the fact that uh, this thing got aired and three, uh, that we had uh, a po a political class that reacted and, and did change the law. So, so those those are the notable things that you take away now that you have sort of the last uh, probably real hearing, uh, barring any sort of uh, substantial appeals. Yeah, Ben, how is this um, the, the trial? Everything, everything that happened changed that community down there. I mean, it's hard to, you know, make generalizations, but just based on what the family was saying, you know, this is sort of a modicum of justice. You know, it's it's probably accountability more than anything else, because, you know, true justice would be uh, Ahmaud Arbery being alive today um, and this never having happened. Um, and just going off of what Leroy was saying about this whole issue coming to light, of course, the cell phone video was, you know, the, the critical factor, but also we almost didn't even have this federal hate crimes trial, um, when the federal prosecutors offered a plea deal to the McMichaels, uh, that would have seen this case just totally skip trial and see them, you know, plead guilty and none of this evidence come out of this of this racial animosity and hatred from all three men, particularly Travis McMichael in terms of all the digital evidence that the prosecutors were able to obtain from his phone and his social media. So the fact that 
uh, all of this evidence has been able to be laid out is is quite remarkable and I think unprecedented. Yeah, I I think we can, and a lot of credit has been given to uh, Maude Aubrey's mother, uh, Wanda Cooper, and all of this, Emma, and how she really fought for all of this, um, for something to happen. And from what I heard yesterday from her comments, she seems at least pleased that it, it came to this point. Right, and it is a big difference from how she was feeling during that plea deal um, time, as we know. That was a really intense moment, and um, it was notable that, very notable that the judge rejected the plea deal, as Benjamin said, um, that that just, should, even though at that point those men had already been sentenced to life in prison in state court, the, the symbolism and the importance of seeing this all the way through to the you know maximum punishment that they could get, not through some sort of plea deal, um, was was crucial to them. I mean, in my coverage of this, especially more towards the early days of of it, I think what struck me about how this was playing out in Brunswick and how it has since is there have been some big changes at the Glen County Police Department since then. That's notable, I think, um, that because part of you know the our, part of the problem here was the way that the police department was functioning um, in this moment and related to the DA's office, which, by the way, that investigation remains ongoing from the Georgia attorney general. We look at the two DAs that have been implicated um, in this case. One of them was indicted. And so that is something that will continue to go forward. Um, and and um, ultimately, you know, Brunswick, based on my reporting, had never had while racism had been there, there was never such a big open public reckoning over it. There was a story I was told about um, in, you know, in the 60s, the, I'm sorry, maybe it was in the 60s. I can't remember. I have to go back to my story, but the Klan came to the county line and a group of black and white Glen County residents met them and said, you're not coming in here. And this was the first moment that this community had such a open, um, moment over this this kind of situation and so for the community it was it was huge yeah i think you know one one thing we know is that while this chapter is over in terms of the the legal the legal part in uh when it comes to those who murdered Ahmad Aubrey, we, we as you mentioned um emma we're still going to have the you know what's happening with the two da's and and more when it comes to this, but there will be lingering effects of this, and, and, and we hope positive ways. I'm going to go ahead and get us to our next break, go ahead and take our final break a little bit early, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about the ACLU's ruling on abortion and look at the state's monkeypox cases. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for host Bill Nygut. I'm here with the AJC's managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and GPB's Benjamin Payne, and also Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurd. I'm also joined by GPB's senior health care reporter, Ellen Eldridge. Ellen, it's good to have you on. Thanks for having me on the show. So, so a Superior Court judge is considering arguments on whether to once again block Georgia's so-called heartbeat bill. We heard that yesterday. Ellen, can you bring us up to date on what happened? Are you? Are you? On? Yeah, I, I, um, I was prepared more to speak about monkey pox. I just, I saw some coverage this morning, but I, I wasn't prepared to speak as much on that. Okay, so maybe let's go ahead and Leroy, do you have something you can tell us about what you know what, what happened yesterday? No problem. Ellen, we'll get back to you. You got lots of good stuff. Yeah, so yesterday's hearing, uh, it, it, there, there was uh, testimony about whether or not uh, the privacy law uh, would, would really impact the uh, six-week uh, uh, bill that is now uh, you know, become law in Georgia. And so uh, it, 
a judge will have a a, a, a ruling at some point, but this was uh, the ACLU having a, a, a chance to have that argument. And so yesterday was a couple of hours of testimony and it was uh, Judge McBurney um, who heard this in Fulton County. And of course, McBurney is the, the gentleman uh, who is uh, the judge you may uh, know also because he has been uh, overseeing uh, the uh, Fulton County motions in the uh, special purpose grand jury. So he has been in the news for, for, uh, for a lot. So he's got a full plate. But, uh, but this was expected, and the arguments uh, uh, have been uh, made, too, about uh, the, the privacy issue with uh, whether or not um, uh, that would prevail to actually uh, undercut the, uh, the six-week uh, six law. So we will, we will uh, expect uh, some ruling from Judge McBurney at a certain point. Uh, but again, what this uh, emphasizes, though, is that uh, in, in, in wake of what happened with the federal Roe v. Wade ruling, uh, abortion is very much a state issue. So as we are polling and as we uh, get toward elections, um, all of this is going to come down to uh, judges and elected officials and local prosecutors and our General Assembly on the future of abortion. So this is just one, uh, the court system is just one place where the future of abortion is going to play out, and we're still seeing it here. Yeah, as, uh, Emma, as Leroy mentioned, the, the Supreme Court brought this back to the state, sent this issue back to the states, and this is our really our first time seeing how it's going to start playing out in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, we're just in the middle of our, our glorious uh, court system and our different layers of uh, <laughs> a law. So, I mean, as we know, the, the fate of this law has been decided in the federal court system, and some of the opponents believe that they might have a stronger case given the state constitutional protections to the right of privacy specifically, and that's what they're arguing. And um, we, we will see, ultimately, we assume that the state would appeal, and this could very well end up in front of the Georgia State Supreme Court. And, you know, I've heard mixed thoughts about whether it would have, it would fare any better there than it, than it has, um, you know, elsewhere in the court system. But it is, it's where the fight is now, and there is a chance that Judge McBurney could enjoin the law, again, from being implemented. So, as the federal courts did before, that could happen again at the state level, and um, this this fight will continue, uh, at least for the near term. Yeah, there's no way of knowing, is there, Leroy, how, how soon we might hear something back from Judge McBurney? No, there, there isn't. Um, and in fact, uh, there, there could be, uh, you know, even more things that, that could, uh, he, he could be considering. So uh, it, it really just um, is it, something that, again, is going to play out and it's going to be a long, long process. Yeah. So I, I want to add, McBurney okay, does go ahead. seem to have a really big case uh, calendar, as, as Leroy said. I asked <laughs> someone yesterday, I was like, are there any other judges? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I sure think a lot of us have wondered based that. on the cases we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of us have wondered that. I wonder how he feels about having so many of the high-profile cases with him. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, let's change gears a little bit, and I, I want to uh, talk about something that just came up. And it, it when it comes to uh, the elections, let's focus on the elections a little bit. And I know Leroy, you've been covering a few things, but I want to get your reaction, you and and Emma, to the uh, Herschel Walker made a statement about the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago, and um, and he he said that uh, today Herschel Walker released the following statement after the FBI's unprecedented uh, partisan raid on President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago. Gas prices are at an all-time high. Food and housing are unaffordable. And less than 24 hours after doubling the size of the IRS, Joe Biden and Washington Democrats are now weaponizing the FBI to target a political opponent. This happens in a banana republic, not in America. And if they do this to a former president, they can do it to any one of us. Mayor Garland must resign or be impeached. This isn't a partisan issue. It is a matter of right and wrong. Emma, I wondered how you, um, your thoughts on that uh, coming from Herschel Walker running for Senate. Yeah, I mean, to our point earlier, it's not surprising that we'd see Republicans um, including Herschel Walker, talk about this What in this way. What I'm struck by, especially since Herschel Walker, as we know, is endorsed by President Trump, I'm struck by the silence we have from Brian Kemp on this issue and how just it's another indicator of the difference between the two Republican men at the top of the ticket in Georgia. Um, for so many ways, their campaigns are um, 
being, you know, they have different strategies. They have much different context. One is a Trump appointee. One is a former, one is a Trump enemy, I suppose you could say. Um, although we haven't heard Trump talk about Brian Kemp in a long time. Um, you know, their polling shows a difference of positioning at this moment in the race as well. And here's just another example of, um, of how it's two very different messages coming from the top of the Georgia Republican ticket. Yeah, it is interesting. Let's let's move on to the gubernatorial race a little bit, Leroy. I know you've been on the campaign trail when it comes to some of this stuff. And tonight, um, Stacey Abrams has an economic address this evening. Tell us about that and what we might expect. Yeah, so, um, of course, we've uh, had some polling here, and our polling shows that uh, the race for governor is tight, but uh, Stacey Abrams is behind and has some ground to make up. Uh, if you look at what's on the mind of voters, there is nothing that is more important than the economy. And it stands the reason in any election cycle, the economy is going to rate high. But this particular election cycle, given uh, how inflation has affected everyone, uh, you know, tax policy, uh, economic policy is, is paramount, right? So this is boiling down to one thing. Uh, Brian Kemp is trying to make the point that he is best able to handle Georgia's economy, and he points to economic development, pointing to the Rivian Project, pointing to uh, job creation because we've had uh, low unemployment, and also pointing to the fact that uh, there have been tax rebates. So he's given tax money back. So what Casey Abrams' argument is this, is that the state has a historic surplus, and we need to be able to build the uh, foundation of a great economy, that Georgia needs to be a great place to live. Therefore, making sure our healthcare system, our infrastructure is built to the point where we will attract more investment, take care of our people. Uh, that's our counter-programming. So what we're talking about is a very narrow audience. There are only about 7% of voters who haven't made up their minds. <laughs> so essentially, this is a broad topic everyone cares about, aimed at a pretty narrow audience of people she needs in order to be able to make up that ground. Yeah. Emma? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that the other thing is she's she's taking the social issues that we know um, aren't broadly popular with the general election voters that Kemp has supported, namely on abortion and gun regulations, and making an economic argument about them, pointing to you know the loss of music Midtown, pointing to the um, possible possibility that Georgia could lose film and TV productions based on its abortion laws, but. On the point Lee made about the surplus, I'll just flag that she, you know, her plans she has outlined very clearly don't include raising taxes, but they do include using some of the surplus. But Kemp is governor right now, and he has control of the surplus right now. So he very well could spend a lot of the surplus, and it looks likely that he will announce further ways to spend the surplus this week that would actually affect her calculations on um, her budget proposals as well. So that's just something to keep an eye on for us as we look to how these two candidates are are batting the ball back and forth, as it were. Yeah, I think we're going to see, certainly this is, a, you know, we're, we've, we've got quite a few uh, weeks to continue to have this uh, back and forth with all of this. New things every day. I do want to get into uh, another issue that, that can, always has political implications, and those are, those, that's health. And of course, as Stacey Abrams has talked about that in terms of uh, Medicaid and and other issues dealing with health. But I want to get specifically into something that we're dealing with in Georgia, and that is monkeypox and the rise in the numbers in Georgia. Georgia has some of the highest numbers in the country. So we want to bring in GPB's Ellen Eldridge to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Ellen, we are um, pretty high in Georgia when it comes to these numbers, right? We are, yeah, and considering that the very first case ever was confirmed early in June, that first week of June, as of yesterday, the CD updated, we're at 625 cases in Georgia. And nationwide, we're almost to 9,000 cases. And, and just last Friday, we were at 7,500 for the whole nation. So it's this is really something that's expanding quickly, and it, yeah. It's it's scary. I know people who are, you know, there were there were all these. Um, well, people have theories on how you get it. it you know, that, that you can just bump up against somebody in the grocery store. That you can just be near. 
Talk about some of these myths that are out there, what's true and what isn't. Yeah, there's, uh, number one, this really does take prolonged exposed contact with somebody. It is not a sexually transmitted disease, but it, it requires close contact, which of course includes uh, many of that. And while 99% of the nation's cases are among men who have sex with men, that does not mean that it's only affecting that population. In fact, nationwide, we've confirmed at least four cases in children, which is definitely something to consider as kids are going back to school. The, at least one of the cases was thought to be hand, foot, and mouth disease, which, of course, it wasn't. And the, the three-year-old, this was in California, was actually showing symptoms before the family members, which is believed that the contact was among family members. So this is something that spreads, they think, through respiratory droplets and very, very close contact. Uh, one of the main things to look out for is that telltale rash. But the epidemiologist with the state health department told me uh, just a few weeks ago at the board meeting that Many people in Georgia are not seeing a very developed rash. It, it could be just one or two rash marks, which are easy to overlook. Yeah. You know what? I, I can't help but thinking back when I was young and I had the, the chicken pox and what that was like. I think some people are thinking about those kinds of things. And while it was bad, this seems, uh, I don't know, maybe, it, maybe it's because it's new. It just seems worse. It's just uh, scarier. Yeah, and it's important to point out that monkeypox is in no way related to chickenpox. It is similar to smallpox, um, but again, it's it's and, and the rash is not gonna it's not gonna present like chickenpox. In fact, most of the cases the rash appears in one, maybe two areas of the body. Almost half the cases are seeing a rash in the genital area, but it can also appear on arms, legs, uh, you know. And and again, it's important to note that a lot of these cases in Georgia are not, we're not seeing a lot of, of symptoms, even the, the swollen lymph nodes and, and the fever. It presents kind of like COVID, uh, but it, it is easy to miss. So their experts are saying that people who are in high risk categories should be on alert and uh, possibly go in and get that vaccine. Yeah, and let's talk about vaccines real quickly. Testing and vaccinations available in Georgia. Uh, tell, uh, tell us where we stand. Yeah, testing is uh, available all throughout Georgia at healthcare clinics. Of course, you can see your, see your doctor. The, the first phase supply of vaccine that we received in Georgia is already gone. And we are expecting, I think, about 34,000 more doses to come over the next month. But one thing many people may not realize is that only one company makes this vaccine and 34,000 doses, it's a two-dose vaccine, just like COVID. So that's not enough for 34,000 people. And of course, you know, we have 159 counties here. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you mentioned kids going back to school. Let's talk a little bit about COVID and um, what, what some of the expectations are. As, as you know, we, we know that we've seen cases rise in the state in the last month or so, month and a half. Yeah, we the whole country, including Georgia, of course, has been under high transmission for at least a couple of weeks now. And I know I know that everybody wants to pretend that it's over, that it's no longer an issue. But, you know, the fact is, last year when kids went back to school is when we saw that Delta variant that hit pretty hard. And not too long after that, we had the Omicron and now we have sub variants of Omicron. The issue is going to be making sure people are vaccinated. And in, in Georgia, we've got just over 55% fully vaccinated and 70% of Georgians five and over had at least one dose. So a lot of people are protecting themselves, protecting their kids, but these subvariants, you know, not unlike other infectious disease, it's gonna continue changing and boosters are something to consider. Now, they're, they're working on a new vaccine to specifically address some of these newer variants. Of course, it's, it's still a little bit behind, but we're hoping that that can be available possibly as early as October. So if you haven't gotten your booster yet, you may wanna wait till October, but of course, if you're in one of those higher risk categories, you know, you may wanna go ahead and get what's available now. Children should be, expect to be exposed in school. 
Yeah, I think we're going to have to wait and see with schools just starting, you know, what happens, whether we're going to see like these rolling shutdowns where some of the schools have to close particular classrooms or the schools close for a few days, those kinds of things. And we've got that and also schools dealing with, you know, safety issues. And there's so much that schools are dealing with. It does bring into play, Ellen, a little bit talking about public health funding for all of this. Um, We're... um, we're not where we should be, certainly, with this, and it certainly and it keeps it, it keeps coming up. Um, there's some uh, there's an advocacy group that is pushing for for more money. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, there's quite a few advocacy groups pushing for more money. Right, it's all about money. Uh, of course, there is, but there is the, the Trust for America's Health organization releases an annual report, and this year's it, it published just ahead of monkeypox. But I spoke. I spoke with one of the leaders of Trust for America's Health, and they really said that they were pushing for more public health funding to build up those those structures like the computer system and and have money to hire and retain epidemiologists. It's, It's not something people are itching to get into after COVID, much like other industries, teachers and and such. So we need the money to not only keep what we have and build up what needs to be replaced, but also meet emergency situations. And and now we are dealing with a a public health emergency with monkeypox. And, you know, we, the public health emergency allows for more funding to get more vaccine out and distribute it to the states. But again, there's, there's one company making it and we're just going to have to wait and be patient. Okay. Well, I, I know that this is, you know, when it comes to politics, this is probably low on the list, but it is certainly something that people are thinking about. You know, in terms of what the politicians are talking about, it may not be as big of an issue, but it is something that that they are um, going to have to deal with. So I, I'm wondering, I want to bring you in, um, Emma, you and Leroy in on this a little bit in terms of what what we think might um, the Biden administration. Um, might do in terms of handling all this. Um, Emma, I didn't know whether that we're we're going to see something more coming out of the White House when it comes to monkeypox and some of these uh, and and the COVID issue. Well, I don't cover the White House. Yeah, I know. Specifically, Donna. But I will. So I don't know if I have exactly your answer there, but I am just struck by as we all remember well how that COVID thing seemed far off for a bit and we were watching the cases tick up and it still seemed far off and then all of a sudden it was certainly not. And there have been a lot of parallels made to how this um, this is, uh, monkeypox is progressing as well. So I, I got to expect we'll see more um, on this beyond the federal state of public health emergency that that released more vaccines, my understanding, and more resources. Ellen can probably speak better to that. But I, I'm curious to see when it when it enters the Georgia campaign trail as well. Like if our numbers keep ticking up, get going into November, um, it will become something that politicians can't ignore either. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Leroy, uh, they, that the Abrams campaign had from the beginning has pushed uh, health issues. And so this this may be something we may hear a little bit more from her about. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, th- this will not, uh, politics uh, will not spare uh, the, the response here. So not only is it going to be with uh, what the Asians campaign will, will, will speak of, but, uh, but also too, um, just going back to the White House, uh, all of this is going to uh, certainly be filtered through the experience of what happened before but also to the attitudes of Americans now who I uh, think uh, have spent the most part of the summer uh, largely unmasked, <laughs> except in um, pretty specific situations. And also seeing not the, you know, the, the trend line being something that for public health, health officials have been troubling. Uh, for many people, uh, the, the hospitalization rates and the deaths have been to a point where people have not found it alarming enough to be uh, to mask, to isolate, to do all the things that we've done before. So all that adds up to, to this is that uh, there's going to be a political calculation around this at d- during midterms when, you know, we have uh, the conditions for a spike in cases because, of course, when we get to uh, the fall and we're inside more, 
uh, the weather breaks, uh, we could have, you know, the uptick, but also a decision to be made in the midst of a campaign about whether or not we take more precautions and if we go back to mandates. So it's going to be something to really watch closely. And I think on a national level, uh, the politics will play a big part in that. Yeah. You know what, Emma, I'm thinking that, you know, despite your reporting, despite all that we're hearing, the people who are concerned over monkeypox and what's going on with COVID, there is still some fatigue over health issues when it comes to people in this country at this point. I mean, we've been going through this for two and a half years. Absolutely. And, you know, I have heard that criticism of part of the Abrams campaign strategy in particular, which has since the early days focused on um, Kemp's COVID response as an issue that has maybe lost a bit of its saliency just because many people are tired and don't really want to go down that memory lane um, with a politician. And we've seen her totally, you know, broaden her arguments as well beyond that, Um, especially recently. I think we've seen that accelerate even more, but it is true. But then again, if the monkeypox cases rise and rise, like it's not something that we can ignore. Yeah. Ellen, you're, you're reporting, you know, you, you have to, uh, you, you must be seeing a little of this fatigue too with people. I know, I know they want, they want the information, but there's this feeling of maybe, maybe it's just too much. Yeah. I'm sure people are, are tired of it, but again, first case, first week of June, here we are two months later with more than 600 cases. This is something that will need to be addressed politically. Hopefully it won't become a political issue, but it's public health. It, it needs to be funded and, and taken care of. Okay. Well, we will certainly be talking more about it. Thank you all for being on. Ellen, Emma, and Leroy today, I appreciate it. Great discussion on a lot of issues, but that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Political Rewind, and thanks to the talented team that produces the show, Natalie Mendenhall. Chase McGee, and the engineers, Victoria Evans-Cash and Jay Cook. Have a great day.